You hear that, Professor? Come on. There is great genius behind all this. Yes, and great evil. Don't forget this. This is an engine of destruction. Hi, everyone, and welcome once again to the Intermillennium Media Project podcast. My name is Matthew Porter, a Generation X dad, and one of my favorite hobbies is subjecting my millennial son, Ian, to movies and TV and comics and things from the 20th century. A whale of a film, I tell you, a whale of a film, it's true. I'm Ian, the millennial son, and I was just subjected to a movie you can probably guess based on that intro. (laughs) That's right. We're going to a movie for the first time here in the uh, Intermillennium Media Project. Not a TV series, although there will be plenty more TV series, but this one was a movie. Break out the air popper. Get some popcorn going. Extra points if you can guess from Ian's little musical interlude there. (laughs) We're going to be talking about the Walt Disney production of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, the classic from 1954. The film that launched a thousand Imagineers. (laughs) Yes. Man, the design and the the production values of this film, especially for its time, are just great. Oh my word. It, It feels like a movie that's supposed to have come out ten years later. In a strange way, the the production, the entire film, felt forward thinking enough that I it it didn't seem like the time you said it was released. I'd say that that's true in some ways. In other ways, it was very deeply admired in its time or times prior, as oh. a lot of Disney stuff, unfortunately, yeah. is. And we'll get to that. But you're right. In some ways, it was very forward thinking. It was very much that Disney mid century technology is wonderful and yet it was also be careful who gets the technology and what they use it for it falls into the tomorrowland problem of the fact that i'm going to predict the future right now which means that it's not going to be that later even for a movie not set then it's running into the tomorrowland problem of being made when it was made right it was kind of retro futurism it was made in the 1950s but it was based on a novel from and set in the 1860s. Yes. And you mentioned Tomorrowland. That's a movie we're probably not going to talk about anytime soon on the Intermillennium Media Project because it was more recent. But I really liked Tomorrowland, the movie. Yeah. I'm, I, one, I'm one of the few people who did. I could see us double featuring that and then this again. Yeah, that could work. And, you know, this uh, podcast we're recording right now is a great example of how this podcast came to be. Because we have these conversations anyway. I show this stuff to Ian, and then we talk about it. We figured, you know, why don't we just record this? We'll share this with other people. Last night, it's a snowy Colorado Sunday night, and I thought, you know what? I really feel like watching, and I just noticed that it's available on our our public library streaming site. I want to watch Disney's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And Ian and his mom, Mrs. Darling Wife on Twitter, says, sure, yeah, well, why, why not? We can watch that. And then this morning, Ian's saying, well, when are we going to start recording? What What do you mean, recording? <laughs> it's the fact that Mom and I are there turning to each other. It's like, so this is a podcast episode, right? I was certain this is a podcast episode. We didn't have seafood with it last night. Was that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know. <laughs> but I know this is supposed to be a podcast episode. And you were absolutely right. I don't know what I was thinking. This is exactly why we do this. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, we watched Disney's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. and. We have stuff to say about it, because there is a lot uh, in this movie. 
the beginning alone is like I want to show that that is some excellent matte painting for that town they've got at the very start of that film. How much of that was matte painting? I don't know. Oh, um, there's a scene early on when they do like the establishing shot of the dock. Yeah. Where you can see a cart have to turn early on one of the streets in uh, the background, yeah, so that they don't run into the backdrop. Okay, got it. And this is like this is one of those things I watch for in movies where I'm like, "Where's the line? Where's the magic?" <laughs> I'm, I'm constantly looking for the point at which someone didn't CGI out a wire properly. Uh, okay, I love those moments, and like, I saw that yeah. in this. I'm like, okay. Unlike today when it's, you know, where's the green screen and the answer is usually six inches behind the actor. It's like, how big was the back lot? So where do they have to put the, uh, the painted backdrop? Oh, and where absolutely. Where do they have to insert the mat? But I want to back up a couple of seconds, though, to the very beginning of this movie. Okay. This is one of those movies from the 20th century. It's based on a classic book. So what is the first image in the movie? Well, first it starts out with a picture of the curtains that are supposed to be in front of a stage. But then the first image of the movie is a copy of the book that it's based on. They don't do that anymore with books that are based on movies. I want to see them start doing that with movies. Excuse me. They don't do that anymore with movies that are based on books. I want to see them start doing that with movies that are based on video games. Why didn't the Tomb Raider movie start with a close-up on the cartridge and say, based on the classic work, oh, that this would, movie adaptation? That would be perfect. Although, at some point, that just means you get like a reboot with a box of the DVD of the movie it was based on opening up and someone like flipping the disc over and then you're zooming in on the reflection and such you start to get meta yeah but in a good way I'm just amazed the fact that I haven't seen a books B DVD cases for a set of this or blu-ray at this point or you know see we where are our iPad covers that look like the books from these classic Disney movies I want to see an iPad cover that looks like <laughs> you've got the 20,000 Leagues of the Sea book from the movie wrapped around your device. That, that right there cool. would be like perfect. That. Yep. But I'm going to say it now. We're still recovering from having seen the Detective Pikachu trailer earlier today. That movie had better start with a picture of a <laughs> Nintendo cartridge. I very least start up with the Game Boy starts in. There ding, you go. Yeah, that's ding, right. Ding. But yeah, that this is very much a movie that is... It felt like it thought it owed something to the book that it was based on. It, it, it changes a great deal from the book, mm -hmm. but it did have a certain reverence to this Jules Verne classic that it's based on. The title and such might say Walt Disney's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, but it's really Walt Disney presents Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea in the way they approach it. And that is good and bad, because it means that anything that goes well can be, look at our Disney magic. Anything that doesn't land is, Jules, why'd you do that to us? And I can see a little bit of, like, they, they, they take themselves seriously enough through this entire thing, but I'm never quite sure who they're trying to say wrote this section. That's interesting. I didn't see a lot of criticism of Jules Verne in this at all, or, or hesitation about this. Maybe that was all embodied in the changes they made from the original, but there seemed to be a lot of confidence in this movie in terms of what they were, were portraying and how they, they adapted the script. Yeah, I see what you mean. So it starts off, uh, to, to start to recap this movie, it starts off, it's, it's 1868, I believe, yeah. and shipping in the uh, South Pacific is being disrupted by a monster that has been destroying ships, uh, especially warships. 
as they attempt to uh, to cross the ocean. And the, at the beginning of the, the movie, even before we see any of our characters, we see this glowing-eyed sea monster r- racing through the waves, destroying a ship on the high seas. We get that combination of, like, that establishing, well, this boat's gone. Right. And we also get that, that rare combination of double uh, book opening and newspaper opening in one film. Right, yep. But right there... Why the glowing green? Well, that's kind of explained later. Kind of. But it's that awesome, is it creepy supernatural or is it super technology? And, of course, the movie answers that. Yeah. But it makes it very otherworldly. You've got steam sailors plying the shipping lanes, and then this thing (laughs) with this glowing green eye is destroying them below the waterline. Well, he's not just destroying them. He is hitting them, and then there is this, like, this frame jump cut giant explosion yeah those ships i mean i know they they carried a lot of fuel a lot of them carried a lot of of gunpowder but they did kind of they blew up like cars in 70s cop shows didn't they and there's this this level of like how does he always hit that precisely and i'm just imagining like the entire nautilus with a striker bar from on a pack of matches just yeah. right across the top i mean that's the only explanation i'm getting at this point because i i wouldn't expect all of them to blow up but every ship we see properly hit like the one that glances survives but any ship he hits dead on explodes yep this is like playing playing something in big head mode he's got he's got automatically over explode <laughs> turned on in the cheat commands yeah. So because shipping is being disrupted by these monster attacks, uh, there are not a lot of ships that are going out, not a lot of sailors who want to ship out with them. So the U.S. Navy sets up an expedition to essentially scour the South Pacific for some signs of this sea monster that is destroying things. And two things happen before they ship out. One is they hire on Professor Aranax, not Anorak, which I keep wanting to call him. But Professor, or Anthrax. Or Anthrax. <laughs> Professor Aranax from the, the French Museum of something. But he's a renowned marine biologist, apparently. And they want his expertise in helping to find and study, if they do find, this sea monster. Though the captain of the ship, the, uh, the, the ship, the Abraham Lincoln, is more interested in proving there is no such thing as a sea monster than in finding it. But before even they hire the scientist, we meet one of our our heroes, played by Kirk Douglas. This is professional master whaler and harpooner. And striped shirt wearer. And musical prodigy, Ned Land. Which I think was actually a problem because our our professor's assistant is played by Peter Lorre. Peter Lorre, yeah. Peter Lorre. And Peter Lorre and Kirk Douglas have so much more presence unfortunately, than Paul Lucas, that it keeps feeling like he's he's supposed to be the third wheel. He's this main character, he's important to the story, but I kept on losing track of who and where he was compared to the other two. And I don't know how to fix that, because in many ways, all the casting was excellent, but there was something, I mean, at very least, give him a more flamboyant shirt. <laughs> so that I can follow, like, striped shirt, bright shirt, and Peter Lorre. Or let him keep his fancy hat or something. Yeah, yeah. something. But no, he kind of blends in too much later. Right. You know, it was, the role was played well, but you're right. It just sort of fades compared to the tremendous casting and tremendous parts 
that we see elsewhere in the movie. In some ways, the professor was the person that Captain Nemo gets to talk to. Yeah. The intellectual peer, which gives Captain Nemo an excuse to explain himself, which the movie needs, but it kind of sells that scientist character short. The professor and Nemo are, in various scenes, attempting to find a taller soapbox to stand it on in front of the other. <laughs> yep. It's just be like, I'm standing on my soapbox. No, I've got a bigger soapbox back and forth in in these conversations. But the fact that I don't remember where one of them was for the last 15 minutes kind of undercuts some of those discussions. Yeah, one weak spot in the movie was that lack of, of parody among all these different characters. Mm-hmm. And Kirk Douglas is just going for broke playing this <laughs> Canadian uh, harpooner. I think he was Canadian. And he is just chewing the scenery, shouting, you know, when he's mad, he is three inches away and he's going to kill you. When he's happy, he is standing up on top of a, of a wagon and singing. We see him, he is he's arguing, he's fighting, he's got a, a beautiful music hall girl on each arm, he's looking for booze. This is a guy who, who is very much an out loud sort of character. And I don't know if it was Walt Disney who loved this kind of character or it fit the kind of movie at the time, but you can't not keep your eyes on him, and you can't not pay attention to this character if he's oh. anywhere near the screen. Absolutely. It's just like, I like walks in, claims the place, turns a, a, a debate in the public forum street corner into open mic night for a moment, and then like is being hauled off by the cops, and then barely any time later in some ways just a couple establishing shots of the other characters next time we see him he's pulling out a ukulele and getting the mu- the the disney required musical scene yes as the ship spends months scouring the south pacific finding no evidence of the sea monster he gets out his his musical instrument and he starts singing this song and i will warn you if you do watch this movie you will have the song whale of a tail stuck in your head for an indeterminate amount oh, of time after that Possibly the three or four months, same as it they they took to scour the the South Pacific for uh, the sea monster. It's a pretty good song, though. It's fun. It's uh, it's yeah. and it's a you know, lot of jokes about women that Ned Land has spent time with at various ports. It was simultaneously like this lovely, endearing, fun chipper song, and it also really awkward yeah it's it, it becomes like i'm i'm going to brag about my exploits and put down at least one lady real yeah. or fictional in the most like great now i like your singing and don't like you kind of odd dynamic right now when i first saw this movie on tv i was maybe eight or nine years old and i really liked music and singing Han Solo had not yet been invented, <laughs> so I thought that Ned Land from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was, like, the coolest guy in the world. I mean, he gets to gets to spend months on ships hunting for sea monsters, not actually having to do any work, and he has all these cool songs to sing. I had no idea at the time what this song was about, being, like I said, eight or nine years old, but... Okay, you've now made this comparison. I've got to ask you a question. Yeah. Would Han Solo be more awesome or less awesome if he pulled out a ukulele? I don't know. I'm hoping that eventually we will see a prequel that shows tells us the answer to that. <laughs> we haven't yet, but no. for for all we know, he's got he's got mad ukulele skills. Maybe it's a deleted scene from the solo movie. I don't know. I haven't seen yeah. the DVD yet. <laughs> oh goodness. 
Chewbacca is the one with the ukulele. That's there the you trick. go. Yeah. yeah, they are a double act. A yeah, combo. that would make sense. Got a whale of a tail to tell you, lad. The whale of a tail or two. About the flapping fish and the girls I've loved. On nights like this with the moon above. Whale of a tail and it's all true. I swear by my tattoo. Ahoy! Ship off the starboard bow. Now, one side effect of Ned Land's musical number, as is played by Kirk Douglas, is that it seems to attract monsters. <laughs> because after three and a half months of searching for a sea monster and nothing, when he has this terrific musical number on deck, moments later, they finally see the monster. And they see it because it attacks a ship in the distance. And when they go to check it out, they find out, you know, all hands were lost. This ship was struck and exploded. Like all, all ships directly struck by the Nautilus. It immediately explodes in the most glorious fashion possible. But they just happen to be there enough to start firing upon the beast as it flees. Right. They they run out the cannons and they start firing on the Nautilus. And I don't know if they, they hit it, but the Nautilus does turn. Well, I, they think they hit it. They're yeah. like, oh, it, 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 we struck it. It's turning. We must have disabled something or, or injured the beast. And then it's, no, no, it's getting faster. It's coming at us. Oh, no. But it's only a glancing blow, so they don't immediately fully explode. The ship does go down, but because he was already in the longboat to harpoon the monster, Ned Land is, is saved and, and adrift. So are the um, professor and his assistant adrift after the ship goes down. The professor's adrift, and then Peter Laurie is just like, I'm going with you, and jumps from the side. I can't tell if that is is just, you're my friend, or you pay my paycheck. But it's one of those two. But he follows along. He's actually the only guy who decides to get in the water of the three. And that's that sets something up about him, I think. It does. He is, really is a loyal assistant and does not always agree with his, his uh, employer, but is very loyal to him. Yeah. An interesting character. But yeah, they wind up in the water, and their sh- the ship they were on is gone. But they wind up finding this monster and find out that it's made of iron. And it's actually a a submarine boat, a submerging boat. Oh, my word. They find it. They find the open hatch and, like, walk around its foyer for a moment before anything actually gets started. And this is where we really get to see some of the amazing design work that went into this. If steampunk did not exist, this is what invented it. And I, I, I think this is what it comes back to because... This is such a great visual depiction of the kind of super science that Jules Verne portrayed in his books. It is the right amount of prepared for the environment as we, re- as we know now you have to be. And, of course, you can have framed paintings with glass up on the walls next to your riveted rust-colored steel. There's no problem with that. This is going to be all the comforts of home carried with you in a way that feels half ready in the modern era, but is delightfully endearing in that sense to me. It's, you know, oh yeah, I've got my open my open shelf cabinets here full of my important research things, but I've got a secure this secure bolt on them. There's not quite, but I love it. I, I am still so in favor of that. It's oh yeah. yeah, it is physical, it is solid, it is strong engineering. These are giant rivets holding together giant 
plates that create the submarine. But yeah, we are still civilized gentlemen. Why wouldn't we have a, a finely set dining table and a library of books and an amazing organ uh, <laughs> in the, the sitting room that resonates throughout the entire submarine when Nemo plays it? I'm just imagining that there's got to be like at least one member of the crew who doesn't like organ music. But it's like everyone else is just like doing their thing. Captain's playing his song again. He's just there going again. Yeah. Oh I've, goodness, you can't not hear it anywhere in this thing. I think he might have been bait some time ago. <laughs> yeah. Was such a, uh, a crewman. <laughs> but I mean, my word. Also, the burial at sea. Our heroes wander through the thing. They see all these elaborate, wonderful, tactile. Oh my goodness, yes, sets. And then the professor looks out the big dome window and sees this burial at sea with them in diving suits digging the the hole putting the casket in there putting this already barnacle encrusted cross yeah i think it was might have been made of or carved from a reef or something yeah but they're like they're they're doing this entire fuel procession and then they're walking back they see the professor stunned in this dome and so the first real actions we get of Captain Nemo, leader of the Nautilus, is leading a religious ceremony with his crew. And what I know is supposed to be surprise and then tell my men to go, but looks a little too like hip hop dancing underwater <laughs> with how exaggerated it has to be in this costumes. There's something a little like, Halt! Very Lay alarms out to the sides, yeah. and then huzzah! <laughs> Very big pantomime because they're in these diving suits. That's a, I guess that's naturalistic in that you've got to be big to be understood, and that's the way to communicate. But yeah, it does look a little bit circus-like on on camera. Just want to like edit it back and play the footage forward and backwards with like some K-pop there, and it looks like <laughs> a choreographed dance. Oh group. yeah, that would be pretty cool. A lot of this would. That's our first introduction, actually. To Captain Nemo. And shortly after that, Captain Nemo and his crew who are outside for this funeral reboard the Nautilus and take off their diving suits. And we that's when we meet Captain Nemo, mm -hmm. played by James Mason, who does such a great job with this part. You are from the warship that attacked me, are you not? Yes. We were under the impression that this was a monster, not a craft of human invention. I'm not what is called a civilized man, Professor. I'm I have done with society for reasons that seem good to me. Therefore, I do not obey its laws. It's a complicated part. It's a complex person represented by, by Captain Nemo, and James Mason plays him extremely well. It's very aggressive, very, there's a lot to the part, and yet some things are just done with an expression. With some really good camera work and direction, but really good performance on James Mason's part as this Captain Nemo. You have to be a smart powerful figure in the room who speaks to everyone gruffly and has command of a wide array of advanced technology compared to those he's interacting with. You've got to be Bruce Wayne under the sea. Very much, and there's a lot of Captain Nemo in Bruce Wayne and Batman. Oh, absolutely. This guy who's out for vengeance using high tech and creating his own code, separating himself from the rest of the world with a secret base. <laughs> the only trick is that if the answer to where are they isn't in the ocean, he's not going to deal with it. <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> Tell me where they are. Oh, they're, they're on the beach. Darn. <laughs> oh, uh, I'll get them next time. <laughs> well, the cannibals will deal with them. 
<laughs> so jump forward a moment, but yeah. let's go, let's follow the track for now. So Captain Nemo, who is very obviously he is in command. You just look at this room full of people, you know, this is the captain. And he is very refined of speech and manner and very formal and very polite. Oh, and his first response to having these three castaways on his uh, stowaways on his ship is to put them outside and submerge so they all die. <laughs> because he has absolutely no sympathy for anybody who, really for anybody on land, definitely for anybody who has anything to do with trafficking the oceans in warships. Yeah. And he, it's why he, he's out there destroying them and he has no interest in them. With the apparent exception of Pro- Professor Aranax, who he recognizes as a person of learning, somebody with whom he can share what he has learned about the oceans and about engineering. He's got a copy of the guy's book. Yes, he has a copy of uh, Aranax's book. He obviously already respects Aranax and is happy to have him stay on board, but he's going to get rid of the others. I'm just imagining the crewman who is sent on the mission when they are like close enough to someplace that here's my list, go to the bookstore to get a copy. I don't know if that is a high honor amongst the crew pe- the crewmen because you're the guy trusted to go get these few things we need. Or if that's the, you've drawn the shortest stick, you have to go on land. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I, I can't tell, but it's, it, it's one or the other. There's not really, you're not really putting someone on the middle of the totem pole for that task. So you're saying there's not an Amazon locker on the beach they can just have their books delivered to? <laughs> just just, just a, uh, an octopus with a little cap knocks on the plate, puts a <laughs> box next to there and leaves. Yep. Lots of those little air cushions and plastic wrap to keep it dry. Uh, but too many of them, they just float to the surface and they bob around. Them, yeah. You never get to them. In one of the first real shows of character from Aranax in that in what the script gives us is the fact that he does not accept this from Nemo he is he's too loyal to the people he escaped from the sinking Abraham Lincoln with and says no I'm I'm not going to abandon them and so all three of them are put out on the deck while the Nautilus submerges and Nemo watches them very closely and eventually resurfaces and brings them back in he sees the strength of character that means that misplaced though Nemo may think it is Professor Aranax has this loyalty to his companions and won't stand by while they go out to die without him so all three of them are now guests slash prisoners of Captain Nemo aboard the Nautilus the fact that it takes that long for us to get such a a true Professor Aranax character moment is problematic I want there to have been like some issue earlier getting on the boat that he, you know, no, my assistant's coming with me. Show us something like that a little earlier so we weren't waiting this long for him to be there as a character instead of a, a plot device, a, a moving point in that sense. But I can understand for the sake of time and pacing, which this movie is already trying to deal with, it wasn't quite there. Yeah, although when I think about it right now, we might see this as a bit of a character arc for Aranax because early on, we see him talking to reporters about the reports of a sea monster. This is back in San Francisco on land. And he's talking to them, and he is being a little more free with his opinions about what might be possible than his assistant thinks might be wise. And then the professor is shocked and upset when the 
newspaper story that is published is totally sensationalized, and it's using the the out-of-context quotes from this famous professor to support the idea that there's a sea monster, and they even have a picture of the sea monster, nothing that Aranax had ever uh, seen or, or agreed was possible. So we see a little bit more of a naive person, a little yes. more of an ivory tower, doesn't know how the world works person from Aranax. And then we see when the chips are down, he's standing by his friends. Okay. I'd seen those as disconnected enough, but I can I can kind of see it being an arc when you mm. put them together. I'm not sure if they don't double back on that a few too many times later. Yeah. It kind, he, of, it kind of spirals back and forth for a bit, but... Yep. He is a character who's back and forth. But that ultimately, him standing up to Nemo in that way, or calling Nemo's bluff in that way, does get them all more or less safely aboard the Nautilus yes. for, for the remainder of its voyage. They get invited to dinner. Yes, Which, dinner. That, that, that little bit was interesting with the everything is from the sea. All of the food is from the sea. Everything is, is prepared from there. And they're all surprised by this. And there was something like so odd about the responses they had in some ways. They were much more disappointed than I expected them to be. I expected the professor... Like, the professor seemed intrigued. I expected the assistant to be more equally intrigued. He just seemed disappointed. And then um, and then our seaman is just really, really bothered by this. But I'm surprised. Does he really not like fish that much? Yeah, and I guess it's, well, if it's a fish that I caught and brought up on land and fried, it's okay, but if it's a fillet of a sea snake, somehow it's bad. And it, it, there was this weird range from revulsion to unsettled politeness among our three characters. And I think that may have been stronger back in the 1950s America, where if it's not meat and potatoes, it's suspect. Today, I think the response from a lot of people would have been, oh, sea snake. Cool. Yeah. Tastes pretty good. Got some you're... sriracha? And if, 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 if you have to be vegan, there'd be plenty of seaweed and stuff. But, yeah, sriracha? Captain Nemo could probably find ingredients for, or, uh, for a sriracha equivalent oh, in yeah. the ocean. Because he wanted so little to do with land, all of his food and everything else came from the ocean. He somehow found a, a seaweed that has the properties of cigars? Or other smoking material. Yeah, right, he did, he did just call it seaweed. We yes. didn't get anything more specific than that. <laughs> Dude, what if I built, like, a really big boat, glowed, and then I hit other boats with it? <laughs> That'll show them. And this is what gets them hungry enough to eat all that other weird seafood, <laughs> is the fact that they're smoking these uh, the seaweed cigars. Oh, goodness, I can never go onto the Nautilus. <laughs> So through their journeys under the sea, there's lots of your your standard Disney travel log, nature documentary stuff thrown in. Some of it beautifully, beautifully oh, photographed, excellent. especially for its time. This is when Disney Earth was still part of the other Disney movies. And plot-wise, we get taken to see, from a distance, this prison camp where we learn that Captain Nemo and his crew had been prisoners horribly abused eventually that they they all escaped under nemo's leadership and they escaped to a place where they could then build the nautilus in secret and and wage this war of vengeance and isolationism against the the land powers and the reason they went back to this 
prison camp is it's like a labor camp packing a ship full of the ingredients for gunpowder and munitions. And they're there so that they could take the ship out as soon as it's out of harbor. Yeah, which felt a little rushed in the way they filmed it. They didn't want to hang on this scene for too long for various reasons, but they had to have it there as motivation. And this, of course, is a big point that they pull up later on in terms of, like, story. But the entire thing was, like, you're here now, this is what we've been doing. And I'm thinking, is every ship that? Are they saying that every single ship he's gone after is this? Or is this just, they happen to be here for the important one? I don't know that they're saying every single ship was going to or from this prison camp. Maybe they weren't completely clear, but I think it's possible that every ship they went after was either a warship or carrying military supplies. I'm not entirely sure that Nemo was that choosy about what he went after, but I think it was in some way a military-connected ship, not necessarily connected to this prison labor camp. So a fishing vessel or a standard cargo vessel that didn't have anything military would be okay, but that's less likely, I'm guessing, then? Yeah, yeah they're a little little unclear on that. I don't know they would have gone after a fishing boat, mm-hmm. but he, but, um, and it probably wasn't that tough for Nemo to, uh, to identify military or military cargo ships. Again, they're... They don't, they don't bother explaining that too much, but he had no quest, there was no question about his motivation for going after this particular ship with its cargo of death that it was going to, to bring out into the world and continue this cycle of uh, violence. And sure enough, the Nautilus lies in wait, and when this ship leaves the harbor at the tide, the Nautilus rams it, it, it sinks to the bottom with all hands, and this shocks and disturbs Professor Aranax and his assistant and Ned Land and... I'm not quite sure why, because they know this is what Nemo does. It's not like this is the first time he's done it. It's not like he just started this. Did they think that because he had guests, he was going to forbear from doing this? Uh, How dare you hit that boat? I'm here because you hit the boat we were on. How dare you hit another boat? Like... You know what this guy does. Right. You you have walked into the home of the face stabber, and then you're surprised he stabbed someone in the <laughs> yes. face. It's like, did you not read it when you came in? Did you not remember why you're here? <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's a little over the top, their shocked reaction to this act of murder. It's like, it's act of murder number 13. <laughs> why? At, at, at minimum. It's yes. like, my goodness. You were supposed to be one of the number he got rid of in his initial planning. Yes. Why are you this surprised? And then in the wake of that, in confronting Nemo about this, we also learn that not only was Nemo imprisoned, but also, I think because he would not give up his scientific knowledge, they tortured his wife to death. Yeah, it, it just kind of odd yeah it it's you know i knew these things already so they tortured so i went and then you learned more and used these things right. to get vengeance but there the the information is just there he's just a man that knows stuff right he's it, it definitely it goes along with that kind of great man theory of history where oh absolutely nemo was one of these men and any the countries of the earth wanted to control him, or at least those who knew about him wanted to control him. So they in, imprison him and abuse him, and they torture his wife to death. Did I mention this is a Disney movie? Yes. Where we're just talking about abusing people in prison camps and torturing people to death. Well, it's a Disney movie, so let's be very clear. 
if he had a son, both he and the wife would be killed. It would be referenced much more vaguely, and the son would be the star. It would be Nemo Jr. It would... Yeah, that's the thing. Uh, This is a strange instance of... The the Disney mom dying before the Disney protagonist existed, before like it, for the story realm. Like I, I'm not as surprised Disney did this. I'm just surprised they didn't set up the other standard dominoes. If they were doing it today, I, I think they would. And there was no Nemo Junior, as far yeah. as we know. <laughs> Can't believe that until now the connection to the other famous Disney movie did not occur to me. Where it should be a a white and orange clownfish that is destroying. <laughs> military ships throughout the Pacific. <laughs> it's just the exact same movie, but they've CGI'd Ellen DeGeneres into everything That's now. That's right. Making commentary. <laughs> Finding Nemo did take over the submarine ship in the parks from this film. That's true. There is a direct connection. It is not as far a leap as we thought, thanks to those parks. Yep. And I do miss, I've got to say, I miss the... 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea attraction in Walt Disney World. I, I I got to ride that once when I was in third grade or something like that. And I already was a fan of this movie, so <laughs> that was amazing. There's some videos online, like people put camcorders in their porthole and recorded the the trip. And it is fun. It, it In some ways, the fact that I saw those videos before seeing this movie didn't do them justice. Yeah. Because... The ride makes the movie seem like it's going to be a bit more of a generic adventure under the sea. And the movie makes the ride feel too happy and chipper. Yes. It's like, like the, the ride's like, oh, look at the giant squid and look at the, the underwater sunken ruins. And then the movie's just like, man is despicable and must be slain. It's like, okay, I'm getting some tonal whiplash, Mr. Disney. <laughs> yeah, the ride really did just take the travelogue slash nature documentary innocuous parts from somewhere in the, the middle third of the movie without really laying on the heavy stuff. If during the documentary portion, our sailor and our, and the assistant had actually gotten to run away with the chest full of gold and jewels they found, that would have been more like the ride than the rest of the movie was. Yes. And, and also, I want to point something out here. We learn after that scene that the Nautilus's ballast is a bunch of recovered st- sunken treasure. Right. But I'm going to be mad at Nemo for a moment here for a, a completely other thing. He is great at all this other nautical technology. But if this is supposed to be your ballast, why is it still swords and crowns and blocks and such? Why is it this giant shifting pile at the bottom of your ship? You've got a forge to make this stuff. Gold is fine. It's heavy. Great. Melt it into bars. Put that there. Make it so that it doesn't shift around. Take the gems. Use it for your clockwork. This feels silly because they wanted to show a room full of treasure. When, if you're going to say it's ballast, be consistent and make it good ballast. Yeah, they, they, and for the movie, I think they had to make it look like treasure, both for the sake of the screen and so that our not terribly bright Ned Land would recognize it immediately and want to steal some of it when he escapes the ship, which, of course, he also wants to do. I also think that maybe this is stuff they hadn't gotten around to melting down yet, or 
it was their combination ballast and dress-up closet. Because, you know, <laughs> you're traveling for weeks and weeks under the sea. you got to have entertainment, right? <laughs> Just performing like a versions of Shakespeare's King Henry plays, but with, they've got crowns and swords and such to actually costume with. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that, that can work. I like that. <laughs> and I, I give you a point. Our sailor is not... He, he is bright. He's able to build himself an entire ukulele in Captain Nemo style out of purely shells and things. He builds an entire ukulele That's and right. we see him make it. So he's obviously mechanically smart. That's right. He makes that out of uh, like a, a sea turtle shell and the spine of something. These people are... they. Captain Nemo is very much... Dedicated to getting everything from the ocean, definitely not a vegan. No, yeah. He's like, like, the ocean will give me everything I need. And that includes a whole lot of creatures I can yes. eat. Right. Om nom nom nom. So they spend all of this time, they're shocked at the guy with whom they are traveling because he tried to murder them, is in fact a murderer. And, and of all the ships that we've heard Captain Nemo sunk, the one carrying munitions that were the product of a prison camp seems to be the least ethically problematic if you believe in force whatsoever. That's the point at which everything devolves into, I don't like you and your methods. Well, I don't like you and your methods. And there's just this kind of like, both of you, there are problems here. Mm -hmm. Can you, can you sit down and talk this out instead of stomping around beautifully decorated sets yelling? And speaking of problems, we do get a few other set pieces in the journey before the, the movie climaxes. One of them is they get to an island where the, the Nautilus is going to get some supplies, I believe, and Nemo allows Ned Land and the professor's assistant to go ashore to collect some samples, some scientific samples from the beach, and Ned uses that as an opportunity to try to escape. But he runs back to the Nautilus because the island is populated by what they, I believe, describe variously as cannibals and savages. And I think pretty much the island is populated by people who aren't white. So they must be stupid, evil, and dangerous. It's just, it's, it is a thing of its time. It is hard to watch. I can't really excuse it. I'm not about to throw over the entire movie because it's part of it. But, man... It's just, oh. it's embarrassing that this was part of a movie this popular, that this kind of uh, of portrayal. Because everybody else, every, every single person on the Nautilus, everybody who was, who'd, everybody who joined Nemo in escaping from this prison camp, they all look Northern European. You so said there's nobody else in this prison camp. There's nobody else who escaped with you. The only people who are not white we see are the the generic savages. It's, it's... A really big problematic part of the movie, it's done with the weirdest disconnect of visuals and audio of all of it. Because the the whale of a tail in its many different little musical sting forms has been through the entire background. And this time, they give these people who are supposed to be, who if they want to make them scary intimidating, they can. And it's their island you've just walked into and gotten and tried to take stuff from. And if they want to chase you off their island, that's fine. Great. And then you insult them. Bad. And then you play what seems like a happy ditty over them chasing you. It, it just It's just layers of misstep and awkward and 
<laughs> yeah. Although you do raise something that a point made by Captain Nemo, the people from the island chase Ned Land and the assistant in canoes, in giant seagoing canoes that were somehow hidden close enough to the beach for this pursuit, but not close enough that anybody noticed them. And they get on the deck of the Nautilus, on the exterior deck of the Nautilus. And to his credit, Captain Nemo observes, you invaded their privacy. They have every right now to invade yours. He was seeing them more or less as just another people, which for its time is remarkable. That was huge. That line does more for it. If they wanted to cut back on these savages comments and have a little bit of a better casting in terms of the crew of the Nautilus itself, you can... and still, if you need to, leave our three main characters as who they are, especially if you want to contrast them, that works. Give us a little bit wider of a range with who the crew of the Nautilus is, and then put more weight on that you just tried to steal from their home portion, and you could backpedal or, or, or mitigate some of that problem. The audio editing and all of that would still be awkward but it would be a a misstep awkward instead of a a social problem awkward at that point right it would it would take a little bit more forethought than they had at the for, at the time for this film but it is less it is less irreversible than some films will misstep that is true and this whole hard to watch segment ends with us seeing that the Nautilus has a defense mechanism in the form of an electric charge that can be passed through the iron hull. And it's put on a low setting, so it just gives everybody a mild electric shock, and the natives uh, jump back into the water and get to their canoes, and they go away. This is the, uh, the dial that changes how much we're going to pay the guy to scratch little electric lines onto <laughs> the, to this film later. That's his paycheck. We ramp it up higher if we need him to scratch more electrical lines. Yeah, it was pretty good uh, addition of ad- animation to this live-action movie to see the uh, the little electric arcs and things. Th- that that was, did a pretty good job of that it. That was pretty good. It wasn't jarring in adding that little bit of animation. Mm-hmm. The other set piece as part of the journey is the attack by the giant squid. Oh, well, the, yeah, the, the, the Nautilus takes some damage, I think, from a reef, or are they being attacked by a boat? Yes. Yeah. The, so it takes damage. It takes damage, and that means that like their propulsion system drops and uh, power, and they sink too low. Therefore, invade the territory and are attacked by the giant squid. Which is a pretty fun segment. Oh. It's this giant squid that chases them up onto the uh, the surface in the middle of a terrible storm, which conveniently hides the levers and wires that are controlling the giant squid during the action sequence on deck. Oh, yeah. Outside during this storm. And it turns out that the giant squid is just too big and too powerful. So even though they tried the electric shock, it does not succeed in getting rid of the squid entirely. The electric panel catches fire. And this is where I get to to make the direct correlation to another piece of media here. Oh, or that other piece of media that we don't talk about that was such a big part of my youth? Absolutely. And the fact that this, I think, might be the origin for exploding console panels... We also had a bit of the 
the camera moves and everybody stumbles to one side of the passageway oh. and the camera moves the other way. Oh, absolutely. Everyone stumbles back the other direction. So you, so you get the giant squid prop, which when it isn't right up on the Nautilus, when they're just showing it like in the water, is played backwards, I can tell. They're moving it going the opposite way. And then they're playing it in reverse so it looks like it's tentacles reaching out, flailing for you. Which is excellent. And it grabs onto the thing, and they try to activate stuff, and then there's, like, consoles exploding and pipes bursting left, right, and center. Everyone's leaning with the camera, and I'm like, oh, yeah, we've got a gruff... Uh, we, we've, got a, we've got a crew of odd characters on a ship... Going around places, exploring the unknown. Their consoles explode when they're attacked, and... Oh, yeah, I, I have seen this before. I suddenly recognize this now. This would never make it as a TV show. No, it might not work as a TV show, but I can recognize this now. <laughs> also, they, they never show the fact that if you're putting out that much electricity, wouldn't you be electrolyzing the entire outside of the ship? Shouldn't there be, like, a lot of bubbles? I wonder, yeah. I'm not sure. This might require scientific testing later. <laughs> so you're going to build a giant submarine and run electricity through I was thinking I'd build a very tiny submarine and test it in the bathtub much too. That sounds cool. Yeah, yeah, we can, we can work on this later. But yeah, the giant squid, which which also like is very aware of doors. The yeah, it's giant, a pretty smart squid. It's a really smart squid. The moment they open the door, it like already has a giant arm ready there. Before most people, like some people rush out, but it can reach right in. This squid feels like it knows what it's doing. Yeah, I think if the door were closed, it would have rung the bell and claimed <laughs> to be a telegram or something. <laughs> have you thought of getting your boat repainted? <laughs> right. It also really doesn't like the map. It just keeps smacking against the giant map they have in the entryway. Yes. I guess because breaking glass is a very dramatic thing, but it's like, the first thing I'm going to do is hit the map! All the people, that means nothing! <laughs> this map in particular! Rawr. <laughs> and it was it was a neat uh, combination of puppetry and, and editing, and but Captain Nemo and pretty much his entire crew are out on deck while the Nautilus is on the surface trying to fight this giant squid and Nemo's talking about the fact that it's how dangerous it is and stay away from the tentacles and he then proceeds to get caught in the tentacles two or three times and the only vulnerable spot is right between its eyes and I'm thinking gee if only you had somebody on board whose entire job was killing things with harpoons well well, to, to continue the Batman parallel he hands an entire crew of, of people, like, hand axes and pikes. There's not a f- single firearm in all of this. He, N- Nemo doesn't use guns. You're right. This He's, adds to the Batman thing. He uses electricity. He uses physical power. But he doesn't use firearms that we've seen, does he? Yeah. Also, I want to point out, we're certain that this giant squid is attacking the boat because they got too close. Or is there a possibility that they ate the squid's brother? Because they eat only seafood, we get all of these things. It's like, I think this might be personal, especially with how much this squid is like, he gets zapped and he's back at it again. He is not taking no for an answer. Oh, now I want to <laughs> see a novel in the style of Grendel, which is this whole story from the giant squid's point of view. Exactly. That could be excellent. Like, there's this thing that's been destroying some local ecosystems. It ate your brother. And it keeps on dropping these giant wooden things into the seafloor, messing up everyone else's day. I'm going to go take it out. This squid might be the hero. 
and all the squids and the deep sea cephalopods are arguing whether this monster really exists. Exactly. I think that we've got another story here. That sounds great. But the reason why they don't have the the master harpooner available to help them fight this giant squid is that he's been locked up because he's been sentenced to death by Captain Nemo for stealing food and planning an escape and attempting an escape, and Nemo's just had enough, so as soon as we get around to it, we're going to kill you. But he does wind up breaking out of his cabin in time to get up on deck, kill the squid, and jump overboard to save Captain Nemo, who is still wrapped up in one of the squid's tentacles. So Captain Nemo begrudgingly says that, you know, you saved my life, I'll spare yours. And Ned Land is kind of mad at himself for having saved Captain Nemo. So he goes and gets drunk on the uh, preserving fluid that all of the, uh, the undersea scientific specimens have been... He's he's going through all of these things and he reads alcohol is a solution is not quite the, the what he he read it as. Right. No, no. Careful there. No. And he makes good friends with the um the seal that is uh, Captain Nemo's pet. Yes. He feeds the seal the samples and then he drinks the preserving alcohol himself. He find he finds a uh, singing partner. True. That's yeah. true. We get a few more versions of uh of Whale of a Tail. Now with seal accompaniment. And <laughs> And someone make that mashup now. Someone make the mashup now with seal accompaniment. Yes. (laughs) Eventually, they journey back to Captain Nemo's base, which is not under the water. It is on land. He kind of has to acknowledge at some point land is useful. They do call him a hypocrite enough times towards the end here that I'm not surprised when we see that. Right. But there are, are troops waiting for him there, because meanwhile, Ned Land has snuck around the Nautilus, found the navigation charts that seem to indicate where the Nautilus' home base is, throws messages in bottles with this information. One of them must have gotten picked up by somebody because there are all these armed troops waiting for the Nautilus when it gets back to base. Way too many armed troops. And rather than let the secrets of the Nautilus and his super science fall into the hands of those who would use them for evil, or evil un. As opposed to destroying ships with hundreds of people on board. Non-aquatic based vengeance. There you go. Couldn't have that. Uh, He sets bombs and he destroys the the base. He's shot on the way back into the Nautilus, but still pilots the Nautilus far enough that... How does the Nautilus eventually get damaged such that it sinks? I I think it's because, A, they didn't get to make the repairs after the squid fight, so it's already semi-hurt. And then there is a whole lot of cannon firing uh men who should be crewing some portion of the boat getting shot and i think a couple of cannon rounds hit him as they're trying to leave but in in the end it's also just a whole lot of people gathering around nemo getting a final on deathbed soapbox and saying by the way i'm gonna nuke us all right they're not very clear about it but they seem to be indicating that the Nautilus is run by atomic power or something very close to it. It was apparent that Captain Nemo had discovered what mankind has always sought, the veritable dynamic power of the universe. This secret alone gave him mastery of the sea. It's part of the earlier sections where Nemo is showing all these cool things to the professor. And it's his 
blindingly bright source of power and you have to put on this giant lead shield in order to see it. Meanwhile, everybody else in the room is just averting their eyes because that works for radiation. Yeah, I'm I'm also a little annoyed because the giant thing that's the backdrop to all of this is a bunch of these multicolored glowing like glass domes on a wall. And that was just a little too forbidden planet and not enough 20,000 leagues for me. I'm like, ooh, that that seems a little... You're getting... You're, you're losing the aesthetic. Careful there. I don't see enough rivets. Bring back the rivet gun. Yeah, it was a little too glossy, a little too glassy. Mm. But they, they only describe this power as being... Have He's tapped into the, the, the power of the universe, which in 1860s terms is not a bad description of atomic power, I suppose. Yeah. Although it, it does have that, like, and this will solve everything. Right. And that seems to be what other people, what, what the rest of the world wants from Nemo is his science, and I would think this is a big part of it, is yeah. his power source. So in the end, the professor and his assistant and Ned Land and the SEAL all escape in the skiff from the Nautilus, while Captain Nemo and the Nautilus and all of Captain Nemo's loyal crew sink to the bottom with the damaged submarine so that it doesn't fall into anyone else's hands. All his loyal, not actually well-fleshed-out or given their own character moments. My goodness, the crew is a bunch of people playing one character at that point. Yes. His first mate doesn't have a lot of dialogue, but at least we get a little bit of a character from him. If only so we can care when he's fist-fighting Ned Land in the flooding compartments uh, uh, of the Nautilus towards the end of the movie. He's the closest that any of the rest of the crew get to having a character. Yeah, give us some more of the crew. This was not enough. They became scenery. And for just one uh, difference between this and, say, the book, and this and what I think Disney would do these days, is it's fairly clear that Captain Nemo is not surviving the end of this story. Oh, yeah. Whereas in, in the novel, it was ambiguous as to what happened to Captain Nemo, and we do get a crossover sequel where he shows up later in another book. And today, of course, they would keep the door open to a whole bunch of sequels. This is anti-sequel baiting. Sometimes you'll put in a thread that you intentionally don't conclude so that you can get a second movie to finish it up. This one is like, we're going to make sure that any hanging threads of possible story die in fiery nuclear blast alongside one of the main important people of this film so that there is no hope of a second one. Unless we're thinking about this the wrong way and Captain Nemo isn't the character we should focus on, maybe there could be a lot of sequels about Canadian harpooner Ned Land, (laughs) in which he is captured by another terror of the sea and learns another song. (laughs) Yeah, you'd you'd have a lot of fade to black and then I got drunk and blacked out <laughs> like cutaways that might be easy to write <laughs> you know i was there thinking i'd learn another song i got drunk passed out woke up tried to tell someone else about that time i was with captain nemo they didn't believe me so is went starting, on another boat this is really starting to sound like a jules verne sequel written by charles bukowski which <laughs> yeah. i would watch i would read that <laughs> But yeah, that's how that, how it ends up, is the Nautilus is gone, the whole crew is gone, Captain Nemo is gone, and the professor and his assistant and the harpooner and the seal are surviving to tell the story. Okay, that's actually a point. Now, we, now he has a seal. Now Ned Land has a seal. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So now it's a buddy cop. <laughs> it's Turner and Hooch on the sea in the 1870s? Oh, absolutely. 
That works. We might have something here. So we talked about the design of this. The story is interesting. Some of the performances are amazing. I think Kirk Douglas, with this wacky character, does a great job because he holds nothing back. Oh, yeah. He, he does not tone it down. And the contrast between that character and James Mason as Captain Nemo is just so striking. And the engine of the movie is the contrast of these characters because James Mason is just so compelling in how understated this is how certain he makes this character of absolutely everything. I'm not quite sure he's read the phone book, but he's at very least like audiobook of terms in service. Do you agree? Yes, no. <laughs> yes, right. In terms of he can command presence, you're going to look at him, he's going to be the important person right now, and you're going to agree with that. Right. Like him or not, agree with him or not, you cannot ignore him. Mm -hmm. Is why James Mason has been so good playing bad guys for so much of his oh, career. Wow. Prisoner of Zenda, there's so much good about that the, that version of that uh, adaptation, the movie with James Mason, but it's it's James Mason as the bad guy in that movie that makes it so much fun. Oh, yeah. And this so that makes him perfect for this kind of anti-hero. He brings those other roles with him. Yes. In some ways, the fact that you were that he is good at playing villains from even before this film, and if you've seen movies from around that time, you're going to see some of those other roles come along with him. You're going to distrust him off the bat. You're going to be wary. Makes you more in line with the other main characters. And that's good for this role. True. In, and in some movies that comes off as, oh, this is James Mason, so here's what I should think about him. And in some movies like this one, 20,000 Leagues, he really does become immersed in the character, and yet that presence comes along with him. Mm -hmm. And we talked a bit about the style of this movie, the, the production design, the, the style of the technology of the Nautilus, and that is still so influential and so so groundbreaking, and I just love it. It's all so physical and real and high-tech. I want a, a house designed in that kind of Jules Verne through the Disney lens style. I joked at the beginning that this was the film that launched a thousand Imagineers, and I'm, I'm a big fan of Disney in terms of the parks. Don't go often, but I, I read about what's going on, and I especially love the history of the parks. I read about articles of that and interviews with people and videos about what used to be there and what isn't now. And there's so many projects that I've heard of that would be started up that would call upon this movie as a reference. That I was glad when we were getting to see this because this is that underlying theme to that tactile Imagineer style that is even present in Disney now that pick-up-and-touch-it portion that Disney does that a lot of other places don't do. And what's that video series you uh, introduced me to? Give them a shout-out, because there's um, a lot of great stuff for those who like the Imagineering and the, the parks. Disney parks plus others. Oh, yes. Defunct Land. That's the one you're thinking about. Right. Yeah. Defunct Land. They'll talk about it, and I love that. Shout-out to Kevin. He will go into this, but all these other projects, that, and a lot of them haven't come true. A lot of the projects never came to fruition, but it's something that it's constantly referenced back to, and that says so much that this movie, even if its style can't always translate, the concept of 
how much you could walk around those sets, how those railings, and that uh, place was not bad OSHA standards-wise by that sense. Lots of railings. (laughs) But the fact that you could turn dials and move switches and see things happening is still there. Yes. Amazing. And it's, it's only now starting to fade away. That tactility is only now in some of their stuff starting to to leave it, I think. We're starting to see the physical ride get placed with the, the motion screen event in a way that's not the same. And I'm starting to wonder if this movie... I mean, it had a bigger footprint. It had a bigger a bigger impact than it as a film alone was. But I'm wondering if we're starting to see it peter out now. Maybe. And that in the world that we live in, being so much less substantive and tactile mm-hmm. in, in so many ways, so, so much of what we are interacting with, even if it's just in terms of television and iPads and, and things, the weight and the size and the shape and the feel of it doesn't change when we're going from one thing to another because it's all on the same device. Designers don't have that same input in some ways or don't have the... They're not trying to replicate something with physical weight in the real world the way they were in the 1950s. In the 1950s, most people worked with machines of some kind. And you could imagine what that would have been like if it was a super machine from the 1860s. Yeah, and so that's where it is, you know, Jules Verne set up the the concept and the characters in that sense. And the execution of that for this was Disney. And that's where I was saying, like, who who is taking... Who is the credit for what portion that I was mentioning at the beginning? Okay. It's, this is Disney making tactile the Jules Verne aspects. And when that worked, it became part of Disney. And when it didn't quite... It was left as Jules Verne's. Oh, I see. It's not so much what they're taking credit for or blame for as much as being able to see through the movie to where the inspiration was. Is this really something that came from Disney and his people? Or is this something that they are presenting because it's from the original Jules Verne? Exactly. I think I understand you better now. And that's that's where the riveted panels of walls and railings and such became something that turned into the background on Disney. But the the framed filigree maps and such didn't quite hook on the same way. And so there's parts of it that I look at and say, I see later films calling back to this, not as a story, but as... And I, I don't want to say this and mitigate it, but as the greatest tech demo ever, because this is a great telling of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And this is an even more impressive state of the art for what films were at the time. Yeah, it was the most expensive Hollywood movie ever made at the time mm-hmm. after the cost overruns. And even today, it is impressive for that. Yes. It hasn't lost the shine. And I mean shine in terms of concept but in 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 physicality the rusted metal of that effort and that money and that time right it would all today it would all be cgi and even if it were the best cgi possible it would still be different and it It wouldn't be the same as this was it would be cgi of the time it would take them going in and saying we built a brand new modeling engine a brand new render engine a brand new, improved version of green screen, teal screen, whatever, 
that is crisper and sharper than anything else. They would have to put so much more behind the scene before they put it on the screen that I don't think you would see that now. And this movie made the 1950s. It was still, we built something physical and pointed a camera at it. And Mm -hmm. that doesn't change. Oh, yeah. That looks the same to us today. And the fact that we know different things doesn't change the way it, it looks today versus the way it looked in the 1950s. We can do what we what I did at the beginning and hunt for the matte painting. Right. Because we're a little bit more aware of the techniques. Yeah, and I did that in the 70s when movies were still using that. And I was reading Starlog magazine because I, was, I, I knew that was one of the ways movies were made. Mm-hmm. So that's something that even somebody who was interested in movie making would have looked for in the 50s. So... But yeah, the, they were able to do so much within that. Yep. And that means that it still holds holds water today. <laughs> well, that actually, talking about how this would be approached today, edges us into some of our other, our final uh, categories, our final judgments of the media that we watch on the Intermillennium Media Project. And we've got to think about this a little bit, because so far we've talked about TV shows and our first question has been, binge or no binge? Should you go into this old TV show and binge it? I guess for movies, it's just watch or not. I don't know. I'm sure we'll think of some clever way to phrase that. I'm going to suggest binge, and I'm going to say it this way. Go watch this movie. Then go watch something else of it. Go watch stuff about the the projects for the parks. Go watch stuff about its production. Go watch more about this, and then come back and watch it again. Okay. I'm saying, watch this twice. Turn it into a binge, because you need to watch it as the story, and you need to watch it as the cinematography. You need to watch it as the the making of a movie. And I think you need two viewings to see that, which is why I'm going to go back and see it again. Okay, I can totally agree with that. I'm not a designer, so it didn't even occur to me that you would want to watch it, then study its design, and then watch it again. Mm-hmm. But my being a story guy, definitely watch this movie, pay attention to the story, see how they put together these character interactions, and the best parts of this movie definitely hold up, so it's worth uh, it's worth watching. Oh, Absolutely. So the next question that we usually ask, again, we've in the past asked this about TV shows, but the next question is, Revive, Reboot, or Rest in Peace? And just to recap, Revive, in the context of our TV show analyses, has meant, let's try to bring this back and start this up again, using the same characters, the same actors, if we can get them, and continue the story. So that would be things like Twin Peaks The Return, or The Return of the X-Files. Those are revivals. The other option is Reboot. Let's start this fresh. We'll take this idea in today's technology and today's storytelling and figure out something new to do with it. That would be the Battlestar Galactica approach, for example. And then, of course, there's Rest in Peace. This was a fine thing. Or not, but nobody needs to do anything more with it today. And this is different also because it's an adaptation of a classic novel. So what do you think, Ian? Revive would mean Disney doing An Island of Dr. Moreau, if, I'm, if I remember my jewelry. No, that was H.G. Wells. You're well, thinking the Mysterious Island. Mysterious Island. I'm getting my islands mixed up. <laughs> We'd need a Mysterious Island movie done by Disney. And I don't think we want that. I don't think we need that. So I'm saying no on the first. I agree. We certainly can't have these characters portrayed by these actors. We can't make a movie in this style anymore. It just 
I don't think it could happen. Even as much as they tried, it would no longer look like a cutting-edge movie from the 50s. It would look like a period piece from the 20-teens. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we need Disney to make another 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. So I'm not saying reboot. So that leaves me with a loving rest in peace. With an odd bit written on its proverbial tombstone on this. Which is that Disney, I want to see. Maybe not Disney. Maybe a different studio. But I want to see another film like this in terms of oomph. I want to see another film that is, let's take something classic and push our limits far enough that it has an impact, even if it's in the background, the way this did for Disney. I want to see another film that attempts to push what we can do further. And I think some movies are doing part of that, but this one did so much of that across all of their stuff, across so much of their stuff. We need another. I don't think it's another 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, but we need another film like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Maybe another adaptation of a Jules Verne story that's a little a little less well-known. Maybe an adaptation of Master of the World or something like that with giant mm-hmm. airships. That could be a lot of fun. And what can we do today that would be like what was done in the 1950s with uh, 20,000 Leagues? I agree with you about, you know, we can't, you can't do a revival of this. It's just literally cannot be done. I don't see the need for a reboot of this in that way, but this being an adaptation of a classic novel, I know there have been other adaptations of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I don't think I've seen them, but I know there have been some, and there can be more, oh, yeah. because there's more that you can take out of this book and create your own version. But when it comes to Walt Disney's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, I agree. It's got to be a loving and uh, respectful in the context of its time, rest in peace. Get, get on your diving suits, grab your reef-made cross, and we're going to go give it a nice little burial there, and come back to find people already on our boat. This that's is what right. we're going to do here. So everyone, that's been another Intermillennium Media Project podcast. Thanks very much for finding us online and downloading us and listening to the podcast. We really appreciate it. And we'll have show notes online where you can find information about what we discussed and linked to. And if you're interested in buying copies of any of the media that we talk about, we always include a link where you can do that. And if you use that link to get a copy, we get something back from Amazon on that. So if you're going to buy it anyway and use that link, that would be uh, terrific. We'd appreciate it. I help my dad buy more DVDs of Strange Things that he can then show to me. <laughs> That's right. We, can, we can't let up on this for Ian's sake. <laughs> but until next time, this is Matthew Porter. And you can find me, by the way, online at MatthewFPorter.com or on Twitter as at ByMatthewPorter. That's uh, two T's in Matthew. And Ian, where can people find you? I am at ItemCrafting on Twitter or ItemCrafting.com. Great. So that's it for now. Uh, We'll be back soon with more tales of media from the 20th century. And until then, this is Matthew Porter saying thanks again. And this is Ian saying thank you as well. And go find something new to watch.